right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Sound is very inspirational to me. We didn't have any sound system in the house. We had nothing, no hi-fi, nothing. Today, two musicians, both English, each picked up the guitar at a very young age. Tom York at seven, Peter Frampton at eight. They listened to whatever they could get their hands on. York spent hours in his dad's car listening to tapes. Frampton worked in a music store. And for both, it paid off. Okay, come on, admit it. If you're my age, you remember exactly where you were when you first heard this. That's the sound of 25-year-old Peter Frampton performing what would become one of the top-selling live records of all time. It was 1975, and Frampton Comes Alive would change his life. He was young, but hardly a newcomer. By then, he'd already made four solo albums for A&M Records. He started the band Humble Pie with Steve Marriott when he was 18. He'd been part of The Herd at age 16. And at 14, he recorded a song for Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones. Peter Frampton was a musical prodigy while still just a kid navigating the alcohol and drug-laden music scene of the 1970s. I, I was pretty much of a late bloomer. I had to really learn to drink. 
you know. And people I, expect you to? I think so. Yeah, all, there is You're in the band and yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter your age. Didn't really like... It's like you're in the army. Yeah, exactly. you got to swear and drink, yeah. you know, and now do drugs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I passed out so many times from uh, anxiety attacks from pot. I'm trying to get high, yeah. please. But anyway, I, I managed it in the end. <laughs> right. But um, not really when I was with Humble Pie. You know, you're talking to somebody who your music is like so important to me. Oh, I thank mean, you, you talk so about much. me growing up when I was a kid, and you were very young then. I mean, Humble yeah. Pie, yeah, you yeah, were a yeah. kid, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, when I was growing up, there was like the Beatles, the Stones, Zeppelin, the Who, and Humble Pie. <laughs> you don't want to know what I put in my body listening to I Don't Need No Doctor. <laughs> yes. I mean, you don't want to know. And you, put, and you perform with them for how many years? Uh, 68, 69, 71, four years. And well, how would you characterize that period for yourself? Did you enjoy it? The, unbelievable. Yeah. They were uh, very the, popular. Uh, yes. In the States as well. Yes. That band brought me to America. Where'd you play? Film oh, right. <laughs> That's where we started. We, I met, I, I mean, probably one of the first gigs I met Bill Graham. You know, I don't. You realize now when I look back, it was the beginnings of the creation of rock and roll shows. Yeah. Truly. Bill Graham was the guy on how to do it live, you know, and... and um, Why did Humble Pie end? A couple of reasons. I was feeling claustrophobic in the band because we started off very democratic and doing all different types of music, and now our, our stage act was narrowing and we were just doing more, more of the heavy rock and roll, which I love, don't get me wrong. That's my riff, I Don't Need No Doctor. That's me jamming at, at a sound check in at Madison Square Garden. And Steve just jumped up on the stage and started singing I Don't Need No Doctor over that riff. He and I were very much... That's him singing. Yeah, yeah. He's the one that says, it's been a gas! Yeah, we go home on Monday. <laughs> we go home on Monday. But what I tell you, we're not out of gas this time. <laughs> yeah, how old is he then? Oh, he was probably a couple of years older than me. Okay, so yeah, he's the one with the kid. But you feel claustrophobic, why? Well, because we want, I wasn't uh, being able to do the music, all of this music that I wanted to do. Humble Pie started off really split between acoustic and electric. And also I was coming into my own and Steve and I fought like brothers. The Glimmer Twins. Yes, that's which which is why Humble Pie was so fiery, I think, because musically it was phenomenal. You know, sometimes we'd agree and sometimes we just wouldn't agree. That, it was very sad for me because I knew it would upset them, um, but I just felt left. that I had to, uh, it was time to go on. And Did you know where you wanted to go? No idea. I knew that I was... I didn't want to form another band. I wanted to become a solo artist at you that did. point. Yes. Why? Because I wanted to make all the decisions because I'm a complete control freak. <laughs> but, but seriously, did you feel yeah. you wanted creative? Yeah. You wanted I wanted more to try things Elton. that, yeah, I wanted to try things that maybe other people wouldn't want to try. You know, I wanted to do it. And I have to say that it, it wouldn't have been... I wouldn't have had a solo career had it not been for Humble Pie. I learned so much from working with Steve Marriott. I have to hand him a lot of the credit for 
the sort of things that he introduced me to listen to as well, music, blues and Bill Black combo and stuff like that, that was really influential to me. So that's why it was a, a, a bittersweet thing leaving. I wanted to leave, but I didn't want to leave. And then, of course, as soon as I left, the live album that I had a big hand in mixing, Rock in the Fillmore, comes out. I've left right at that point. And it zooms up the charts. It's Humble Pie's first gold record. And I'm going, holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. It's the first big blooper of my career, you know. And um, so then it was four studio albums before we did Comes Alive, you know. And a lot of of touring. And where are you living then? You still hadn't Uh, moved here yet. I was still living in England until 75 when I finished the fourth solo record in England and then moved over. I actually moved to New York and stayed at the Mount Kisco Holiday Inn on New Year's Eve, 1974. Swinging. Yeah, was it? Beautiful. (laughs) And found Bob Mayo, Bob Mayo on keyboards from the live record, in the band at the uh, Holiday Inn. It's, It's a long story, but yeah, so... Basically, the first day of 75 was I was now living in America. When you do Comes Alive, how much of the music on that is new music on that album? How much of it was stuff you mined from the previous four solo albums? It was basically all stuff that came from the four studio albums and Rock On from Shine On was a Humble Pie track that I'd written. It was actually from five albums, so it was like six years' worth of work mining that went into that one live record. And for people who don't know, that live performance was recorded in multiple locations or in one? Most of it was one location. Which was? Winterland in San Francisco, a Bill Graham gig, where The Last Waltz was filmed. Two nights before, we'd played the Marin Civic Center, and we'd done two shows there. So we recorded that. I think a couple of numbers came from there. Doobie War, I think, comes from there, maybe one of the acoustic songs. But Winterland was the first big headline uh, show we'd ever done, I'd ever done, with my name on the ticket. People were coming to see me for, for because the, the album right prior to uh, Comes Alive, just Frampton, was the biggest one so far, biggest seller. It had done sold like 300,000 copies, which was mega for me. That was better than all the so others. So things in, in that four-album run prior to the live album in Winterland, things were getting better. The, the it, sales it was, were going yeah. up. They were. But that one was definitely On the setting uptick. me up. It was setting me up for something. How many nights at Winterland? One. One, one show. Okay, okay, okay. So stop. So... You're in Winterland. Yes. And would you say, and the show goes on what time? Eight o'clock, nine o'clock, nine o'clock? Yeah, probably probably quarter to nine, something like that. So somewhere between you pull up to Winterland and you go out a quarter to nine, the devil came in your room and made a deal with you, correct? You signed a deal with the devil. Absolutely, yes. The devil showed up. Yes. Poured himself a drink, sat down, and said, Peter, 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 Peter. Let's cut, let's cut to it the chase. It was Peter Cook, actually. It was Peter Cook. <laughs> right. And, he's, and he said, let's make a deal. Or I'm the devil. And the devil <laughs> makes this deal with you because what happened? First of all, there's probably, I th- if I'm not mistaken, if there wasn't 7,500 people out there, then I thought there was, but it's, it definitely sounds like it. It's a big room. They go nuts when we walk out, and it just takes you to a different level, you know. It felt good. 
It was one of those shows when you come off and you look at the band and you just go, I wish we'd recorded that. That was like so good, man. And then we went, oh, we did. <laughs> you know, we you did record, record that. We forgot we were. You see, the event was so much more important than the recording. I don't even remember the truck being there. Recording is June of 1975, and it's released when? We're still mixing right up, up before Christmas, and then it comes out, I believe, on like January 17th or something like that. Of 76. Nin Jan January 9th or, yeah, of 76. Yeah. And what happens? Well, I knew we were going to tour the whole year, so right after Christmas, I went down to the Bahamas for 10 days and relaxed. Before I left... We had put one show on at Cobo Hall in Detroit, which is a big room. And that's all I knew. And so I go away and I don't call anybody. I'm just on the beach and snorkeling, whatever. I come back, we've sold four shows out. And I said, what happened, you know? And the album has just started to be on the radio, you know? And um, that's when everything just went, went through the roof. After all this time, people think it is overnight, but it's not overnight no. in the scheme of things. No. No. But, but, it's but, a huge leap for you. Yes. But it's not overnight success. But it is, it's a heady experience. Is this still the highest selling live album of all time? Or it's, it, among it's them? in dispute, right? right. right. Yeah, but, but, but it's up there. Yeah, because my record is only counted as one one album a certain other artist had it made so that you could count um if you released six cd uh live set you can count it six times well they didn't do that retroactively so in my mind it's still the biggest seller sure yes. and, and eventually how many albums did you sell we're up in the 17 million now 17 million records of issues yeah. When you come out of that experience of having this huge thing, I want to talk to you not about how it affected you career-wise, because obviously that wasn't important. How did it affect you personally? Were you married at the time? Uh, I had a girlfriend at the time. Right. I, I, I don't think anybody can be ready for that kind of success. And I'm a pretty down-to-earth person. I take things as they come. As I said earlier to you, I was a late bloomer when it came to dulling anything. You know, it was almost unbelievable the amount of success. You get these phone calls in quick succession, you're number one in, in the charts, you know, and I, I'm going, wait a second, say that one more time, yeah. and who are you? Was that the time you thought you had to start numbing yourself? Yeah, it was crazy yeah. because people just wanted... You don't know how to deal with that? No, it was very You hard. don't know how to deal with how people treat you differently? Exactly. How your and, life and being always being respectful and, and never really thinking of myself as anything special because I've never been... A, that's just not my character. Well, and what good does it do you? I felt embarrassed yeah. that I was that... This entity became... It was me over here, you know. Yes, it was very hard to deal with. Yeah. Politics. 
Last year, for the first time since 1976, Peter Frampton found himself on stage performing the entire Frampton Comes Alive album. My reputation is as a live performer, so it, it's been phenomenal for me, but it's hard work touring, but I love it, so that's not hard work for me. The tour was particularly memorable as Frampton was playing a guitar that had been missing for over three decades. First of all, we're talking about the guitar that's on the front cover of Comes Alive, which I got given to me by Mark Mariana in 1970 when I was playing the Fillmore West with Humble Pie. And I was having a terrible time with the guitar that I had at that, that night. And Mark said to me, you know, I could see you having problems with that. Do you want to try my Les Paul tomorrow? I said, well, I'm not really big on Les Pauls, but okay, all right, anything's better than this. So he brought it to me, I played it. I don't think my feet touched the ground the entire night. It's the best guitar I've ever played. You <laughs> a know, 54 Les Paul. 54 Les Paul. Basically, I used that exclusively. It's the only guitar I play all the way through all my solo records, and including Frampton Comes Alive. So then we get to touring South America in 1980. We just finished playing Caracas, Venezuela, and we had a day off. And so we flew commercially to uh, Panama, waiting for the gear to arrive on a cargo plane. Well, it never got off the runway in Caracas. It crashed on takeoff. My road manager came to me and he said, I got some bad news. And he says, the plane crashed on takeoff. I said, my guitar? Yeah. He said, mm-hmm. And like six people, loading people, the pilot, co-pilot, loading inspector, all that. So, oh, I mean, killed. yeah, yeah, oh people died. So that took oh, precedent oh, over everything. Yeah, then it put it in perspective, you know, and there's the pilot's wife sitting at the bar oh. uh, who doesn't know yet. It was horrendous. So anyway, I sent someone down, my guitar tech at the time, a week later to see what was left. Nothing was left, supposedly. And there were, guitars were actually in a trunk in cases. In cases, and they had a guard to guard the crash site, the debris site, till the insurance people came down, and he decided that the guitars would be much safer at his house. No. Yes. and then, In Caracas. Yes, in Caracas. This is 1980. 1980. Two years ago, which is 30 years later. 30 years later. I opened my email, because anybody can email me, and I see them all. I open up this one, and there's a picture, a photograph of my guitar. Slightly singed, but, <laughs> but it's Gloriously my last. singed. <laughs> right at the top, you know, uh, slightly singed. But, but there it is. There's a picture, and I thought, could this you be? You see this picture where? In an email to me from someone who'd got a hold of the guitar as it happens in Curaçao, which is a little island off the coast of Caracas, someone had um, sold it to this gentleman and he took it to someone who fixed guitars and they knew what it was. And it took two years of a very gray area. And was he saying, like, I don't want to get processed, I want to get this guitar to you, but I don't want to go to jail? That was the thing. No really? one wanted to actually come. It wasn't come. about money. It wasn't about him. He wanted to There was a reward talked about, but every time it would get close to someone coming in, They'd find something reason why they couldn't come in. So that's why it took two years. And then in the end, the guy actually checked to see if we had booked him a hotel because he just saw himself in handcuffs at Miami Airport. Yeah. You know? And what happens? 
Well, the two gentlemen walk in and he's got it in this probably one of the worst looking gig bags I've ever seen in my life. Cheap old plastic thing. He puts it beside him, you know, and he tells the story in broken English of how this person had it and the whole thing. So then he hands it to me and he goes, feel it, Peter, feel it. So, and I know that he knows because it was the lightest Les Paul I'd ever played. So I just felt it in the case and I went, oh, this could be it, you know. Opened it up, I just looked at it and I just feel it like that and I go, it's my guitar. Oh, how badly was it singed? Where? Just around the very top, uh, it, it lost the binding around the, the headstock. Did you get that replaced? No, I didn't. I left, left it, it. I've left it with its battle yeah. scars. Yeah. I, I, Gibson made it playable. Yeah. Uh, so we refretted it. You call it. that the Caracas kiss yeah. <laughs> on the tip there. And does it sound the same? Does it feel the same? Oh, it's my It's not God. damaged at all? N- no. Just that singe. Yeah, and when I first played it at rehearsals with the band... Everybody had this, like, Cheshire cat grin on their face because it has this sound, and it sounds like Frampton Comes Alive. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you don't have to try too hard. And you got that back when? I got it back just before we started touring in February and March for the last American leg. I used it a little bit at rehearsals, and then I brought it out for the first night at the Beacon. I think the guitar is more famous than I am now, so. <laughs> <laughs> but you were meant to play that music with that guitar. Yeah. and Isn't that I, incredible? I, I remember saying to someone that before I went out that night, I just hope emotionally I'm going to be able to play it. And I brought it out for Do You Feel? And I messed up the first lick because I couldn't believe I was playing right. it. How can you fumble? <laughs> Me, I well, did. It's you know. okay. It was like meant to be, you know. I, I And once I got, the, it was saying to me, come on, get it together, you know. And yes, it's, I'm back now, get over it, you know. What music do you listen to now? Who do you like? Um, right now, this week, Band of Skulls. My son turned me on to, and daughter turned me on to them. And I went to Coachella. I saw Radiohead. I still, I'm a Radiohead fanatic. I, I just love them. I think they're so not mainstream, but they became mainstream because they're just so uh, unique. Peter Frampton says he didn't listen to Radiohead early on, but now it's one of the few bands he and his kids enjoy together. Next up, we'll hear from the leader of Radiohead himself, Tom York, also a father. My son is a great drummer, but I don't know if he'll want to do that forever or not. He's like not bothered really, which is cool. Two English musicians almost 20 years apart in age, each with their own approach to surviving life as a rock star. Peter Frampton seems fueled by a stadium full of adoring fans, but for Tom York, well, performing is more complicated. It takes a long time for that to become natural, I think.
I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive. More in-depth conversations with artists, policymakers, and performers like Patti Lapone, Herb Alpert, and Erica Zhang. The media is more all-pervasive, and the image of women is even more confusing than it's ever been. Yeah, I believe that's true. Go to heresthething.org. Mother's Day is coming, and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. You're just like you're an angel. In 1992, Radiohead released their stunning debut single, Creep. You float like a feather. It was quiet yet explosive, even haunting, and its refrain had a powerful hook. I wish I was special. Radiohead's frontman and principal songwriter Tom York is my guest, and if it was his wish to be special, the world granted it. York's band has become a commercial and critical success, selling over 30 million albums. You do it to yourself, you do. 
Each new album explores a different sound, delighting their followers and scooping up more fans along the way. The spirit of experimentation isn't limited to their music. In 2007, York and his bandmates released In Rainbows on their website first. Fans were invited to pay what they wanted for the album. Radiohead may not have been the first to thumb its nose at the music industrial complex, but they might be the first to do so and sell out a major arena. That said, Tom York hasn't been comfortable in the spotlight. You don't do a lot of press. Um, Were you doing it on an, an as-needed basis? <laughs> yeah, on a need-to-know basis. Yeah, yeah, kind of. York complains about celebrity worship, and I wasn't sure what to expect. Actually, I got you a health food snack. Did you? Yeah, because someone oh told God. me you were like all vegetarian and that. Tom York is, after all, a guy who's married and has two kids. It can be easy to forget he's been a rock star for over 20 years. We started when we were 16, Radiohead, so that's quite a while. And some bands that have had a tremendous longevity, obviously the Rolling Stones are the premier example, yeah. uh, they've changed partners over the years like they were the New York Yankees. You know, there's somebody else playing third base every four or five years. Yeah. And, and But you guys, it's the same cast of, of people all the time. Well, what do you attribute that to? I, persistence. My great diplomatic skills. Not. <laughs> <laughs> but there must be times when they've... I mean, I'll never forget McCartney said to me, even the Beatles got tired of being the Beatles. Were the times you guys sat there and looked at each other and said, I think we're done? Uh, I, do, I do that frequently. Right. Frequently. I mean, at least... The others too? Not as much. Right. <laughs> they just wait for me to do it. Right. Um, it goes through these phases, you know. We've grown up together. It's weird. I mean, um, so we just did a tour last year, right? And it was probably in theory the scariest one we've ever done because it was lots of big gigs which I normally am spending my time trying to shy away from why? because you can't achieve technically in a large space what you normally want to? exactly that you can't get across to people the right way I felt so we did spend a lot of time and effort coming up with like a stage design which used screens in a certain way which made it intimate even though you know some nights it was like thirty or 40,000 people oh. trying to create some sort of intimacy with that and when it worked it was insane because the upside of playing to that many people is you have this really crazy collective energy that you can tap into like a crowd you know thing there's one show we did in Phoenix that sticks in my mind where there was something about maybe that it was in Phoenix and, and people don't get the opportunity. Those sort of people don't get the opportunity to get together that often or something. There was some sort of excitement within the crowd that was so great to play with. When when we hit it musically, it felt like the whole room, the whole of the building was moving. Honestly, we both came off stage. I understand. You know? Yeah, I understand. That th and it's bonkers. I, I understand that not from my own experience, but from seeing artists perform. You know, I often ask myself, why the hell would would you put yourself through this? Because it's very stressful. It's a lot of pressure. And for me, mentally, I have to I build myself up to it in my head gradually. And it sounds really precious, but it messes with my head.
What's your preparation before you do a live show? Before you, because in the studio, it's mm. obviously a, a whole different animal, correct? Yeah, there's no preparation for the studio. You, you know, it's bull in a china shop most of the time, which is how it should be, I think. And performing live. Yeah, that's what, what's give it to me the, a couple of hours before you go out there, and you got to blow this thing out for all these people. I just um, stone cold silence. Basically, almost meditative. Well, yeah, I do. I do that and focused. I stand on my head for a bit, and I basically, I'm completely on my own until five minutes before we go on, and then we're all in a room together, pacing up and down like <laughs> wild animals, and then yeah. then we're on. But when we first started doing big shows, it was with my friend Michael Stipe, and he does the total opposite. He literally. He'll be talking to you, and then someone taps in on the shoulder, and then they're on. And I was like, "How the hell do you do that, man?" And I, and I tried to do it like that, couldn't do it. And right. so I ended up going. Did he say? Did you did you get any indication why Stipe could do that? What he used to do was, he would stand there for the first two tunes, barely move. He was a sort of lightning conductor, and he was just waiting for it to hit. And then when it hit, he was off. But he would wait. And if it wasn't going to hit, he was still there three or four tunes later and waiting. He kind of warmed up in front of everybody, mm -hmm. gauging it all. Whereas I can't do that because I have to sort of be clear of everything before I, you know, whatever. I, I need to um, be completely empty. What do you think you do best? You uh, lead a band. Mm, you not very uh, good at that. well, uh, the, you you play guitar. Mm. You write music. You produce music. You do the, and you sing. What do you think your greatest strength is? If you had to pick one, so I don't know what I'm doing. Right. I like the fact that I still don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I think. Well, no, honestly, I can't. I, I go. I'll go through whole phases of um, months where I haven't got a clue. I regularly lose complete confidence in, in what I'm doing. Why do you think that is? Because um, I have the same condition. Why? Partly because I think I don't quite understand how it happens right. um, after the fact. When, when what happens? When the appreciation comes to you? No, when you're, when you're piecing something together. Got it. Right. right. Um, things will fall into place. How you make it. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, the nicest bit about the creative thing, the nicest bit about recording and writing is this sort of weird limbo where you, in between, scratching away, scratching away, nothing really happening, nothing really happening, and then something wants to be built and starts to get built. You just have to let it happen. And then it gets to the end, and you, and you look at it a few months later and go, huh, how did that happen? sort of weird amnesia that goes with it something will happen one little sound goes off or, and you go oh that's really nice for me uh, when I was at school I didn't get on with the school system at all um, I see it in my son the same that sort of the mechanics of how a school operates and how you're supposed to blend in or whatever so I hid in the music stroke art department and had a great time there and discovered that actually that's what I wanted to do straight away. The heads of both schools just 
saw what I was up to. Is this the teacher that you often credit with your... Yeah. What was the teacher's name? Terry James. But but it was him and uh, my art teacher as well, actually. It was like someone sort of takes you under their wing and say, well, you know what? You're actually quite good at Mentoring this. Mentoring is a very critical thing in this business. Yeah, because it's, en- it's enough. At that age, it's enough to just get a little push and then, oh, okay. Or does someone push you in a different direction? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah that would be bad. So, yeah, no, how about you go to the other? I think department. you need to Engineering be a lawyer. Is your, yeah, right. I had, I had, my father used to think I used to go into advertising, which is like, <laughs> really, yeah. brilliant. Yeah, I'd really be good at that. Well, one thing you're good at is avoiding my original question, oh. which was, what do you think you're best at? Oh, damn. And let's I try to choose if you can. If you, may, if you don't mind, on. confine yourself to the <laughs> list I provided. Uh, what do you think you're best at? Okay. This is multiple choice. Guitar, band kind of, uh, you know, paternal figure, songwriting, producing, singing. Hmm... I guess singing. Okay, I'm glad you chose that one. I, I was driving. I was trying. I think when I popped the word singing the way I did, I was singing. trying to say right. or singing. <laughs> what was singing to you? How did your singing evolve? Where you arrived at where you are now? Where most people say you have one of the most uh, evocative singing voices in all of music today. Mm, um, well, basically. I went to music, uh, went to a few singing lessons, but that was basically just so I could literally breathe right, you know. Mm. Um, one of my favourite singers, like Bjork. When I watched Bjork sing, um, I've been lucky enough to sort of sing with her and watch her do it. And I was going to say, you're one of the few people who can use that phrase, when I watch Bjork sing. Yeah. Most of us say, well, when I listen to Bjork sing. <laughs> It's uh, in here. It's right here. They say, you know, with 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 um, in yoga and stuff that whatever it is, can't remember that that spot at the top of the forehead that you really. Most singers, like Neil Young, is the same. He sings into this spot in his head, and and what he's singing, he's already heard. You know what I mean? He's hearing it come out. The same with with Bjork when she's singing. She's singing what she's hearing, so there's no force. It's a force in itself. It took me a while to get that, and it keeps changing. To me, how I sing now, or to me, it feels different to a few years ago. Why? It just does. It just does. Age have anything to do with it? Well, yeah, there's probably some physical element to it, but but also just where you're at you know because singing is nothing but like probably like acting singing is nothing but being in the moment that's it and where you're at yeah when you do like um when i used to be like you know 
when when you're trying to do singing or whatever, you record. I remember sort of, okay, computer, I still had this thing like, well, I need to be a little bit half cut when I'm, you know, I need to do something or other beforehand so that I'm in the right space, man. Well, it's all bollocks because basically you just got to learn to be there with it when you do it. You're not trying to prove anything. You're not trying to get anywhere. You're not trying to achieve anything. You're not trying to get this emotion across. You're not in this space trying to get this space across. You're not trying to get this mindset across or anything. You're just letting it happen. now when you live inside your life now whether you're performing live or you're producing and recording music do you feel different now that you're older i mean the chasm between when you're 16 and when you're 43 is extraordinary <laughs> isn't it just it's just mind-bending yeah has fatherhood affected your work um yes but not really the, you have the obvious things where you would you go out on the road more if you didn't have children. Yep. Yeah, some people absolutely. Talk about that. Yeah, but that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. You know, being on the road is is it's a it's not a great way to live your life. It's, just, it's it's you don't want to do it all your life. You get a little bit un, gets a little unhealthy quite quickly, mentally if not physically. Has it been difficult for you mentally? Uh, it can be difficult. I mean, it's, it's it's wicked fun, a bit too much. It's either wicked fun or really awful. Like when you're sick, then it gets really. It's a real bummer, man. Just, have to get out there. Yeah, tr tr try to sing your way through the notes that you can't find because you're so sick or whatever. That's really super stressful. But you know, it is a massive buzz. There's no denying it. It's great. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. In a minute, how Tom York takes a break. We call ourselves the Sunday Painters, and we go on bad painting trips. Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. 
right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. When you reach Tom York's level of success and fame, there's a shift in your day-to-day experiences. Parts of your life become unrecognizable. I mean, I'm assuming you're in a world where that your phone must have rang. Maybe it stopped because you kept saying no, but maybe everybody's like, you know, Bono wants to pick you up tomorrow and fly you to St. Bart's. Yeah, that never appealed. I don't hang out with people because they are who they are necessarily, right. unless I'm a big admirer of them. Like, I mean, I stalked Ed Norton for ages until eventually he gave in. Cause Why? I, because I'm a big admirer of him. I think he's brilliant. So I, I hang out with him a bit occasionally. Now, tangentially related to that, as you've gotten older and you look around the musical landscape, what you see, does it appeal to you? Meaning, of the music that's popular music, I mean, what's selling now the most successfully, have you moved into a different place with that or do you admire a lot of what's being done is your what, in music the, in the mainstream in the mainstream there's nothing in the mainstream the mainstream is just a void you know to me i mean what's weird about putting a record out now really and this is not like sour grapes at all it's just the fact the volume literally the sheer volume of stuff that gets put out it's like this huge freaking waterfall and you just throw in your pebble in and it carries on down the waterfall and that's that right okay next Basically, you know, like in this country, the radio is tied up and people don't really listen to the radio in the same way. It's, it's, music's going through a, a weird time because on the one hand, as ever, there's always really exciting music being made. It's never not being made. It's a question of whether you're going to get to hear it or not. And I mean, I kind of, I kind of knew the game was up a few years ago when one of our sort of team of people came in saying Nokia wants to offer you da 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 millions of pounds because they want content for their phones and this is like in 2000 I don't know early 2000s and you're like content what you know content what you mean music yes okay content yeah maybe that yes mm. yeah just it, it, stuff could be music stuff yeah, yeah stuff could have be you got, snoring have you got some stuff 
you know and you're like oh okay and i think really that my problem with it is it's like it's now like something to fill up the hardware with you know the music itself has become secondary to that which is a weird thing to me it's like and i think that will change because there's only so many different permutations of the same hardware you can make before people go well actually i have an ipod now so thanks so I think things will change, and I think the radio will change, um, and sooner the better. Because no matter what way you look at it, the most pleasurable experiences you ever have is like when something's played to you you don't know. Well, like going around to a friend's house, and they'll stick a tune on you, like, what the hell's this? You know? <laughs> Which is what it's about, you know? That's why. Or like going into a store when I was a kid, like, and the new Smith records come out and like and I'm going up to the guy I think that's like he's really cool like the indie store in town and just talking to him about music for 20 minutes you know and you know you share and now everywhere you go music is everywhere it's everywhere but and it's not, not like music. yeah that's what I'm saying it's so content it's, yeah it's content is king <laughs> that will change and when it does then I think we'll have a resurgence the underbelly will come back um, overbelly. And then, <laughs> well, if it's middle aged, it'll be overbelly. Well, you, you have a ways to go there. I'm going to be taking some slimming pills. Yeah. But no, we, no we, in the way that you talked about this pebble in the waterfall and content and music marketing now. So if that changes, certainly, which it has, does your willingness to release your music into that world change? I mean, like, for example, an obvious example, maybe too obvious, is you don't want to play Creep anymore. <laughs> Now, do you sit there and say, like, if the Sultan of Brunei called you up and said, I want you to come to Brunei and we give you a million pounds, just play Creep. I would you play s- Creep and you can go home. I would say to the Sultan of Brunei, <laughs> why do you have that house near me that you never use? <laughs> I could just meet you down the block. I mean, come on, it's an empty house, man. It must yeah. be worth whatever. Yes. That's what I'd say. A trillion dollars. And I'd say no. Obviously. Then you'd say no. Yeah. But I'm a- When you retire a song that way, why do you do that? Well, uh, not necessarily retire it. I mean, I don't recognize it as as me, which is kind of quite interesting. When I hear it singing, just that voice, I don't even recognize that. It's kind of odd. Whatever you want. But then I remember hearing, I remember hearing Lou Reed like on some radio station in Dublin years and years ago, and they were asking inevitably about Velvet Underground. And he said, yeah, or sometimes it comes on. I'm like, well, this is cool, what's this? And then I realized it's the Velvet Underground. I'm like, wow, yeah. I kind of know what he means. Sort of, you get to the point where you're like, what's that? That guy sounds oh, pretty me. good. <laughs> I don't belong here. So you're 43 years old. 44. 44 years old. Mm. It's just our professional courtesy that we shave a year off of all of our guests. Oh, really? Yeah, all of them. Um, you're in the now and you're in the here, what have you. And I don't, I'm not saying that glibly. And you're, <laughs> no, but I'm saying but you're not somebody who, like Mick Jagger, for example. Like, I wonder if Mick Jagger is going to hit a day. Like, does it happen in a day? Like, is Mick Jagger in bed one day and he picks up the phone and he's like, you know, I just can't do it anymore. I can't get out of this bed. I can't do another show again. And it's over. Like, do you think of other things? I think all the time of the next thing I'm going to do. Yeah. I, um, is there a next thing? You you don't have to tell us what it is, but do you no, think no, this will end? Time, uh, 
Or no, I mean, I. It would end if something happened to my voice. I don't know. Certain things could make it physically stop, and it will stop at some point. Something will happen. But for me, I, I, yeah, I'm always hearing different things. There's always half finished things, which you ask poor old Nigel. He knows about that. There's always a mountain of half stuff I want to get into, stuff I've started, stuff I want to, you know. But I also think it's good to sort of take breaks. <laughs> Because I've gone straight from this Radiohead tour last year, which was a really heavy mother, but really good fun, straight into doing sort of Atoms for Peace stuff, and not really had a break. And so a break is due. A break is due because what I've found with a break is can be an incredibly exciting thing. With that thing of like you just all the stuff you want to do, but you just force yourself not you force yourself to wait and get back into just time and space and. Um, yeah, not being in music all the time, I think, because it's like anything, it, you start to go in small circles, so you've got to stop when that happens. I've had to practice that now. I mean, I, I got married again, and I really sat and thought about that way that I want to have a more ordinary and more normal handling of my emotions I think the best way to put it is what people in my business say, which is, would you rather live it in real life or would you rather play it on screen? Mm. And I'm thinking, I want to walk away from it because I'd rather live it in real life now than play it on screen. I think it, with what I do, it's slightly different. Because what I, with I do, it actually, unless you, you're literally you're spending, unless you are just literally working too hard, it's a regener- regenerative thing. I find that I'm... Well, I mean, my family, my friends know that I'm a nicer person if I'm working and I'm into what I'm doing than if I stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a period where I'm fairly unbearable if I do stop. For too long. Yeah, for too long. There's but a then specific not, time. <laughs> probably, yeah, there's a threshold. But, like, if you want to shift, right, with your work, if you want to shift, if you're writing, if you're um, being creative at all, you kind of have to stop to make that shift because if you just I'm constantly creating I've got this <laughs> mountain of brilliant ideas you're making the basic mistake that you're assuming all your ideas are brilliant where in fact actually the more you do they're probably the more it kind of your thing in reverse because actually I can't write unless I have a period where um, you're restored well, no, it's not restored. Just, just um, reset. I'm like just normal, 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 normal. Speaking of normal, do you have siblings? Uh, yeah, a brother. How, what do you, you have? A brother. Uh-huh. What does he do? Russian politics and stuff. He teaches. No, he he's, he's the ex- mayor of a he's, small town no, near Moscow. Extra, what no, do you mean? Um, investigations on um, people. He did. He, 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 he studied o- um, Russian Oxford and then went into various. Are your parents still alive? Yep. What do your parents... I always love people in your business above all. What do your parents and your brother make of you going from being Tom York Tom to becoming Tom York? Well, my brother was in a band of his own for a while as well, so he has a slightly, like, he can see what it is from another point of view. Uh, what do my parents think? I don't know. They, 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 they like... When I was a kid, they didn't approve. Now that, that I'm happy... They, you wanted to go into advertising. Uh, yes. 
Well, you know, it was like fair enough. I I was like pissed off with them at the time, but I, you know, it's kind of what that's what you do, isn't it? I mean, well, it's everybody's parents. When I, I when I left a pre-law program and I was destined to go to law school and I went into the acting program, my mother was she literally screamed at me over the phone. My mum was very upset when I when I chose to go to art college because she'd been to art college and she said it's a complete waste of time. Don't bother. But, and when um, I became successful in my business, my mother was like, I'm so proud of him. Oh, my God, this is wonderful. Yeah, I, I, it's kind of bonkers, like, seeing them backstage at a really big show. They'll come to a big show, and there's my mum and dad going, that was fun. Got any beer? <laughs> or whatever. When you do uh, step away from it, what other art? Are you are you interested in art photography? Well, my mate... Um, Theatre film? My mate Stanley Donwood who I went to art college with, who does all our artwork with, I mean, I do it with him kind of thing. We we always have these lovely plans about we want to go and um, live in Berlin for a month and just paint and get in trouble and things like that. We call ourselves the Sunday Painters and we go on bad painting trips. We did one where... Um, did you say we, bad painting well, trips? Well, they're bad painting trips because I'm involved. <laughs> Um, there was one, one of my favourite ones was we went on the moors um, down in Cornwall do you know what I mean by the moors? In Dartmoor, basically, mm-hmm. which is very, very, very bleak, but really beautiful. We were in the stone circle, drove part of the way, walked the rest of the way with these big canvases and paints. But we only we discovered we only had purple and blue and yellow. So we thought, well, okay, we'll use that. And we painted landscapes all afternoon. But they were purple and blue and yellow. Some poor woman, I remember coming like late afternoon, coming and ask us, asking us for directions. We're both sitting there, you know, um, canvases up like this, all huddled up with our hooded hoods on, you know, just doing this. And this poor woman comes up, asks for asks for directions or somewhere or other, and then looks at the paintings and just wanders off like. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck, <laughs> boys. Go, I hope you have another away. career. I hope you're not counting on it. it was like me I being, don't think the purple's working for you. <laughs> it was like me being in Italy and this beautiful couple, they were like late, they were older, and the man walked up to me in a camera and he said, scusa, scusa, is a photo. And he's pointing to me and his wife, he's triangulating. And I go, oh, and I put my arm around his wife to take a photo. He goes, no, no, you photo of, of my, my wife, wife and me. And me yeah. You take the photo <laughs> of the mountain in the background. And I was like, oh, my oh, God. Bless. They don't, yeah, they don't know who I am. I should yeah. move here. I should move here. Um, you mentioned someone gave you that push. Yeah. Is mentorship in your career, do people come to you and do you give them a push? A little bit. I mean, um... You must have a lot of people in the music world, young people who look up to you. Um, to me, it's one of the best buzzes, really, is that thing where someone comes up who's new and they're really into... You know, I'm really into what they're doing. It's really fascinating and it's really totally new to me. But yet, the occasions when... They fed off of you. Yeah. And you're like, how could you, how could you feed off me? I don't see any of my stuff in my what DNA you're doing. What you're yeah, doing. but they see it, and I'm like, wow, that's so cool. Especially when it's like, it, like so it's cool. in hip-hop. I'm like, really? You know, people within hip-hop who, who are into Radiohead, I'm like, I find that so fascinating because, I mean, obviously, I'm massively into hip-hop, and we we use hip-hop as a reference point in the way we build tracks and stuff, but, but really? Wow, that's bonkers. You know, and that, honestly, that's one of the really good bits. But it's not really mentorship, it's just people who you admire are good at their shit, you know. 
And when it happens, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. How does success make you feel? How does it make me feel? Radio now, means now, something. Yeah. And your which, name means something. Which which um I think is Well how does it make me feel? It's always been a little bit far away from me. And the only time it sort of makes sense is when we play in front of people, you know. And the rest of the time it's like, well, it's it's just it's who I've been for so long I can't tell you because it's just that's what it is. Uh and I think I've probably been doing it more than I haven't in my life mm. in terms of years, in terms of time. So most of the time I don't really notice and people come up and I, and I go, well, that's nice, you know, thanks very much. You know, it's not like I'm not grateful, I'm just, I just don't notice. And then sometimes people, something will whack you over the head and you go, blimey. Things like doing the first time we did Saturday Night Live, for example, and you go, Really? Because sometimes you can't, you don't know, you don't know. You got, mm. you don't take you're, it for you're on the inside, you can't see it, and 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 also, we spent so long running away from it, and I don't feel like I've run away from it now, because there's nowhere to run. <laughs> <laughs> there's nowhere to run. I run nowhere to run, and also it is like, yeah, I'm really grateful for. I'm. That's a very good Incredibly lucky. That's a very good point. There's nowhere to run and still do it. Yeah, I mean. I just think I'm well jammy, as we say. Uh, it's just really jammy, especially in the US. And it's like, well, that's amazing. I guess I have one more question. Was, what does well jammy mean? I don't know, really. So. You don't know? Jammy is like, um, you're, you're so jammy. Like, you just... I'm dating myself. It's, uh, no, 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 it's go just, on. It's a total fluke, man. It's not really... You're just lucky. I mean, I'm British, right? So I assume jammy. I'm just lucky. There's no skill involved. I'm jammy. This is from Amok, Tom York's latest release, with his other band, Adams for Peace. You can find out more about York on our website, where you can also hear longer interviews in our archive with people like Brian Williams, Andrew Luck, and Saturday Night Live writer Paula Pell. Pleasure Island. Welcome. I read a book about it, and suddenly I went and did it. That changed my life. Go to heresthething.org. Here's the Thing is produced by Emily Botine and Kathy Russo, with Chris Bannon, Jim Briggs, Ed Herbstman, Melanie Hoops, Monica Hopkins, Trey Kay, Sharon Mashihi, and Lou Olkowski. Thanks to Larry Josephson and the Radio Foundation. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.
Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.